From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 13, Exiles from Life, Beginnings of Monasticism. Uh, So for me, monasticism is one of the most fascinating things. Um, And I think some of it has to do with the fact that like the rise of monasteries and the rise of people becoming monks is directly linked to the culture of their day and the not only like um, the secularism within mainstream culture, but also within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there are a lot of parallels between the world we're living in today, particularly here in the South, where things are things do have sort of a Christian veneer, a Judeo-Christian veneer, right? Um, but yet the culture at large is, you know, very secularized. Yeah, um, I had some of the same thoughts. This has been my favorite chapter. Oh, really? By far, actually, and it, it surprised me. Really, but I think it's because it's one of the chapters. It's one of the topics that maybe I just knew the least about. I hadn't, I hadn't done much studying on monasticism. But but you're right. I saw those. That overlay is is almost exact, mm-hmm. where you see the kind of the syncretism that was happening in the Roman Empire and in the Christian Church at the time. Right. And you just, I I think I've even made the joke kind of tongue in cheek through the last couple of episodes that oh boy this stuff sure looks familiar. Mm-hmm. But this this chapter for me is where it really pulled some of that out and and yeah. displayed it just right in front of us. Like, well, this this pampered, low entry level Christianity mm-hmm. with very little expectation in a nation full of wealth. Right. Eh, yeah. Yeah. That kind of hits home. Well, and there's some there's some dissimilarities as well. Clearly, we don't live in a country where there is some sort of national religion, right? We we don't live True. in a country where there is a state church. Maybe in the region, like you said, in the, yeah, in the it, Bible Belt. It is. It is sort of a Bible Belt thing, um, because because at least here in the South, there is still. Uh, I think there are things that uh, positive things. Uh, maybe positive is not not the right word, but there are efficacious things that come from, say, political candidates identifying with Christianity. Right. Right. That that may help them mm-hmm. um, in the polls. Um, there there are certain situations where it might help you to get a job. In the South, if you are a quote unquote Christian, or mm-hmm. if you go to a church, or something like that, and to just remind us of some of the history here, Christianity has gone from being persecuted in the Roman Empire to now in the 300s under the reign of Constantine, it gains favor within the empire and ultimately comes to be the state religion of the Roman Empire. That doesn't happen under Constantine. It happens a little bit later in an official capacity. But what's interesting about that is, so Christianity goes from the margins um, and from being persecuted to being in power, whereas the Romans... Who who are either just secular Romans or who are, uh, you know, they worship the emperor, they worship other, you know, Roman gods. 
they become the persecuted fringe. Mm-hmm. And so there's all of this pressure to convert to Christianity, even if that conversion is not like regeneration. Like even if that conversion isn't a true desire to follow Christ as Lord and Savior. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, just like you had the pressure, you know, not 50 years before this for Christians to walk into this temple of Caesar and proclaim that Caesar is Lord, even if you don't mean it, you got to do it. And now yeah. it's it's just all flipped. Yeah. And and so there are things here where, I mean, there, there are some really wonderful things that happen in this time period. I think there are some really true... Um, genuine believers who hold positions of power and who are seeking to follow Jesus in the midst of this culture. Um, Not that those are perfect people or sinless people, but people who have genuine hearts to follow Christ. And and then you also have people who are in it for themselves and are aligning themselves with Christ for their own livelihood or position or power or whatever. And I guess my view of monasticism has always been that the thing that those who went to the desert or those who went to the monastery were were running away from was just the, like, kind of uh, the mainstream culture of the day and not so much the church itself. What Shelley has helped me to see is that a lot of what they were running from was the corruption within the church itself. Mm Mm-hmm which is also on display in today's world. You know, it's like not only the uh, sex scandals that we've seen, uh, not only in the Roman Catholic Church, but now recently in the Baptist, Southern Baptist Church and in other denominations, and all of the controversy over gender issues and uh, a host of other things that are kind of hot topic issues in our world today. Man, the, the fallenness of... Um, people who call themselves Christians in the church today has been on full display, not to mention the number of pastors who have, um, you know, fallen into all kinds of things from, you know, uh, being uh, sexually abusive to other people or coercive or bullies or involved in, you know, drugs. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just like any number of things. All of the above. Um, there's never been a point in time, and I, and I think some of what I'm wanting to get across here is that there can be, I think, a little bit of a sense of that that the only problem with the church prior to Constantine was that it was persecuted. Right. Right? That that the church, that everybody, you know, truly loved Jesus and that everything, that people were genuine across the board and that sin was not a big issue, that the real problem was that they were oppressed. And that suddenly after... Christianity becomes legalized and eventually the state religion of Rome, that that's where the real trouble starts, that that's where where the real sin comes in. And that's not true. Like, sin was a major problem in the church even prior to that. And we've talked about a lot of that, too. Mm -hmm. We've just talked about it in the language of heresy. Yeah. Um, But when you get into the 300s and the church gains power, there is sort of this you know, that this idea that power corrupts and yeah. ultimate power, you know, corrupts ultimately. And there, there is some level of that. There's a quote here in the chapter, um, if I can find it here, but there's a quote from Gregory of Nazianzus 
um, who speaks to this, and he speaks to the fact that what ultimately is, um, I can't put my eyes on the quote. Here it is. Uh, he, he, so Gregory of Nazianzus complained. Um, this is on, let's see, this is on page 150. He complained that the chief seat is gained by evil doing, not by virtue, and the seas belong not to the more worthy, but to the more powerful. So he's talking, when he says the seas, S-E-E-S, he's talking about the cities where there are uh, bishops. So those are, those are sometimes referred to as holy seas, um, primary cities of uh, Christianity within the empire. And what he's saying is the chief seat, meaning the bishop's seat mm-hmm. in these places, is gained more by evil doing, not by virtue, and the seas, these cities belong not to the more worthy bishops, but to those who kind of wield political influence and become powerful as a result. And we see that. Mm-hmm. We, we see a lot of that, too. There's an overlay because one of the things that has been most striking to me in the past couple decades, which is certainly nothing new, as we're seeing here, mm-hmm. is the elevation of charisma over character, yeah. especially to the, to the level of pastor and the pedestal of these megachurch pastors. Um, that's what people are putting in place. It's charisma over character, and that absolutely is what Gregory's talking about here. Is this evil doing is is just political maneuvering? These are guys who have power. They right. have charisma. Right. They have sway in the Roman Empire, and that's what ends up being used to all of a sudden be essentially the pastor of pastors across right. several cities. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you want to jump into this from the start? Sure. You got time for a joke? <laughs> Always. Yes. Perfect. Okay. This will. I, I have a hard time like just having a real cheery disposition. I think sometimes on the on, over the microphone. So maybe this will help me out with it too. <laughs> don't, so don't stop me if you've heard it. Have you been Have you been conducting some polls? Have you been doing some research? Only for or? myself. Well, just okay. Just I always I always feel like I sound I don't know dour, oh, real stoic. Okay. okay. So all right. So let's let's get into this. All right. So a, a man shows up to join a monastery. And he meets some folks outside who tell him there's there's two rules if you want to join this monastery and become a monk with us. The first is you have to take a vow of silence. And the second is when you do talk, it can only be every 10 years, and it can only be to the abbot. So okay. the guy agrees to the rules. He heads inside and gets to work. After 10 years, uh, the man shows up. He walks in in front of the abbot and the elders, and he kneels down and says, food bland. He gets <laughs> up and goes back to work. Another 10 years. Uh, 10 years later, he walks back in. It's been a long 10 years of work, and he sits down in front of the elders and the abbot, and he says, blanket itchy. And he gets up, (laughs) and he goes right back to work. Another 10 years pass. He walks in. He sits in front of the elders and the abbot, and he says, I quit. And the abbot immediately looks at him and says, no, duh. And the other elders look at the abbot and go, what What? What are you talking about? And the abbot goes, what? This guy's done nothing but complain since he got here. (laughs) Oh my there's gosh. my okay. There's my monk joke. Now we can Beautiful. get into monks. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So, thank you for that. By the way, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> so, I man, this is what's so interesting here is this shift, and we've already talked about it a little in terms of power, but the shift from being a persecuted minority to having power, and the question that seems to be primary is what. What does real devotion to Christ look like? Yeah, when when Christians hold power, 
because in the age of persecution, real devotion to Christ looked like martyrdom. And man, as I as I read some of the history, I I would even say that there uh, that there was an unhealthy focus on martyrdom, right? As if as if my willingness to be a martyr will somehow win me favor with God, mm-hmm. like that 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 is perhaps. That, that there's an element of martyrdom that's just inevitable for certain Christians, especially in the, the 200s. But there's also like a desire to be a martyr that, you know, kind of comes to the surface among the church because it is seen as this is the way that I truly live out my faith and devotion to Christ. And, 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 and we've talked about in recent episodes the way that martyrs come to be almost deified yeah. within the church like this you know we've talked about sainthood and how at least in the scheme of the new testament the saints are all believers it's anybody who believes in Jesus Christ but once we get into the period of persecution and martyrdom um the saints often become the ones who are obedient seemingly to the point of death and endure great hardship even to the point of death. And it's like those folks who didn't give in or didn't capitulate or didn't renounce the faith or anything like that, no matter how torturous, you know, their experience was, that those are like the real saints. Right. And so some of what I think Shelley illuminates in this chapter is what that inevitably creates is like a tiered system where you have sort of an upper tier of Christ followers who are really devoted, and mm-hmm. then you have sort of a lower tier of Christ followers. Yeah, but Did how you... do you fill out that upper tier when nobody's just being killed in the streets anymore? Yeah, yeah. yeah and there's a quote on page 153, um, once we get into monasticism, that Shelley says, many found the ascetic way, the ascetic being, you know, the, the way of the monk to just to get rid of all belongings and outside yeah, influence of the world. all material comforts. That's right. Many found the ascetic way an acceptable substitute for the spiritual heroism required during the days of persecution. This is what folks are seeing as the new way of martyrdom. You're essentially martyring yourself by deciding... I'm going to have no part in this. But I think, and maybe we need to back up, because I do think the important part of this was, as you mentioned, this these hermits, these folks who were going out into the wilderness to become monks, right. these ascetic folks, were they were fleeing, as Shelley says, not from the world necessarily, yeah. as they were from the world inside the church. And this, I think, is what you pointed to as something that was a little bit enlightening for you in the chapter. Well, yeah, because I think about... Um, St. Augustine, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Augustine is a guy who uh, had, you know, part of his story is he was just all in on the world and the flesh in, in the early portion of his life. And then he comes to see the error of his ways, ultimately. And there's naturally, and, and many, many Christians have experienced this, where especially folks who have had sort of a dramatic conversion type yeah. experience, where, man, I was deep into, I was deep into the things of the flesh and deep into like immoral living. 
um, you know, what what even by the standards of non-Christians would be immoral living. Right. And I have this encounter with Christ, and now my life is completely different. And so the natural response is, I've got to get as far away from those things as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is going on here for you know some of these monks. But I've always thought of that as being a response to the world itself and to the culture itself, and not necessarily a response to the church. But it's clear that both of those things are happening here, mm-hmm. um, and and it's multifaceted. So there is this desire to live out some kind of life of extreme devotion to Christ, and that may be. There may be positive parts of that, and there may be negative parts of that as well. Like there may be a sinful level of that where you're going, "This is so." I'm 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 essentially earning my way into heaven through mm-hmm. my asceticism, for by by forsaking all of these material things. Um, it's also a little bit uh, gnostic as well. It isn't gnosticism, but it's a little bit gnostic in that there is uh, a, a forsaking of material goods and material comfort as if that is in and of itself a virtuous thing. Yeah. And if you remember the Gnostics... The duality. Yeah. The Gnostics like put a lot of stock, and this comes from, again, from Plato, as we talked about uh, in the chapter about philosophy, but um, there is there is a, a lot of stock put into the, the so-called spiritual realm, and the the realm of the material or the flesh is is just kind of inherently bad or evil. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of that going on um, with these early monastics. Um, as and and yet, what they're missing is that some of the things that they are forsaking are things that are good gifts from God. Um, that that in some cases we struggle to receive as good gifts and use as good gifts. So sex is an example of that. Things like alcohol, you know, things like work even. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the three, the three main areas that these monks were, were basically laying down, mm-hmm. uh, Shelley points out, were the areas of poverty, chastity, and obedience. This mm-hmm. was generally the threefold vow yeah. that someone takes when entering this sort of lifestyle. Right. And so that does come with a lot of good gifts that can be used well and used to glorify God that for whatever reason we're deciding no, in fact I'm going to I'm going to lay that down entirely. Right. And and yeah, there is there is a duality mm-hmm. there. I can I can certainly see where that that starts to mm-hmm. it smells gnostic. Yeah, and one of the—I mean, one of the biggest ones for people is—is is the celibacy piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the ones that most people just go, "Man, I don't know how how in the world <laughs> they do that." But, but, but you also have to realize that there is some uh, New Testament backup for that, primarily from Paul, that's right. who was not married mm-hmm. and who speaks at times about the value of singleness, yeah. and. And, and almost encouraging his readers towards singleness. Yeah, to remain single. Because you're not bound to anything else. You have no responsibilities necessarily to anybody else. So like It's like you're fully freed up to serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. That That is part of where that mindset is coming from. And then also just the tendency to, um, to take the gifts of sex uh, and use them wrongly. Mm-hmm. You know, which lust obviously is the key sin there that uh, many of these guys 
confess to struggling with. Um, Including the first monk, mm-hmm. which Shelley points out, Anthony, Anthony whom yeah. many regard as the first monk. That was one of his battles. Um, apparently, apparently, lust was among the things that, that led him into a lifestyle of asceticism. But uh, Shelley points out that under the impulse of Christ's words to the rich young ruler, mm-hmm. which were, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And that's from Matthew 19. Anthony, at 20 years old, gave up everything he had and took up the life of solitude in a tomb. And so this kind of started the pattern for other folks to see um, not only asceticism as as a way to be closer to Christ, but also as a way to be free from the world in the church. Because as we mentioned when we started this episode, um, with all the political power and all of the maneuvering going on at the hierarchical levels of the church, what you've got is a real low bar mm-hmm. for Christianity uh, and a lot of syncretism and a lot of the world within the church. So yeah. syncretism, you, you want to just explain that word real quick? So, oh, yeah, sure. Well, so the, the, the conflating or the inclusion of Christianity along with other kinds of either di- idolatry or, or outright, outright worship of something. So mm-hmm. the complete... Um, muddling or diluting of your priorities yeah. until Jesus is just one of many other things. I like mm-hmm. to call it the sidecar Christianity mm-hmm. or like the country club Christianity. Right, right. That. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so that's what that's what we get with these guys like Anthony and then folks just start following suit. It which seems is like. which is fascinating because, you know, even though I think culturally and in the church today there are a lot of similarities, it's hard for me to fathom that if somebody were to do this today that it would have the cultural appeal that it has at this point in time in the 300s and 400s that if you if you had an anthony today um who goes and lives in a cave and eats grass right yeah that you have other people who are flocking to that kind of life and yet at this point in time that is what's happening yeah that's that's a good point i'm sure there are other factors but I, in some ways, this is this is a tiny microcosm of like an ascetic life. Mm-hmm. But I found that appeal when I first met folks who were just giving up social media entirely mm-hmm. and telling me about just how much it freed them from anxiety right. and worry yeah. and stress, and well, then starting to tick those things away, like check off those boxes, get rid of it all, and go, oh wow, mm-hmm. oh you're oh you're right. So, yeah. you know, maybe on a small level, some of this stuff. Yeah, I th- and I think we see that same kind of thing, albeit from, you know, not from a necessarily a Christian perspective, but but in the whole minimalism True. movement in the uh, the Marie Kondo, the, mm-hmm. the KonMari, you know, you know, this idea of fewer possessions will make me happier is is sort of the underlying thread in all of that which yeah. is not necessarily what these guys are trying to get at like they're not right. they're not pursuing happiness um, if anything they're pursuing unhappiness because they think their unhappiness will bring them closer to god um, and so it's i you know shelley points out it's not really a sustainable model like like the yeah. the desert hermit you know, who moves into a cave and, you know, lives, you know, wears animal skins and, you know, eats whatever people bring to him, that that is not like a 
long-term sustainable way to be, or nor is it something that most people can or should do. Right. And so within uh, you know a few decades, you start to have the emergence of monastic communities. Mm-hmm. And, and that, to me, is a much more um, understandable and sustainable thing. Because there is an element with the hermits where it's like, man, you have intentionally separated yourself from the body of Christ on That's earth. That's right. Even if the body of Christ, even if you view it to be corrupt or certain people within it to be corrupt, it is still the church. It is still Christ's body. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised that there's corruption. Yeah. Like, why, do we really think that the church would be perfect? No, nowhere has the scripture promised that to us. Why, like, logically, if we put, you know, just think about your own family, right? Yeah. You, you, your immediate family might all be people who love Jesus and are, you know, moral, you know, and, and upright in the way that they live their life, and yet you put everybody together in a beach house for a week, <laughs> right? And things eventually go sideways. Yeah. Because we're all just sinners. Like and and a and a root of our sin is pride. That's right. You know, like some people would say it's it's the ultimate sin, the penultimate sin, the sin from which everything else flows. That that it's it's the devil's, you know, sin, this desire to be Christ or to yeah. be God rather. Um and so, you know, like that whole, like, I'm going to go be by myself because I don't need any of these other people. I, I, I view that as a as a view that's counter to Scripture. Yeah. Um, but now with, like, the rise of communities, that, okay, now we're getting into something a little bit more, I we're think. We're getting somewhere, yeah, we're getting somewhere at least sustainable. Mm-hmm. And that's, Shelley points out, it took about 70 years, so, you know, a couple of generations before... Uh, he names Pacomius as mm-hmm. one of the first to institute a Christian monastery. And now, instead of just these individuals in caves, right. at least you got a bunch of people in a cave or a bunch of people in a building. And mm-hmm. th- what the big difference was now you're putting everything around a structured life. So there's right. there's communal life, there's common life um, that that he points out. And there are there are fixed hours for things, there are regulations for things. So we're able to live this ascetic life, but do it somewhat in community mm-hmm. and with purpose. Mm-hmm. And then you get an explosion of monasteries. Yeah, you do. And I mean, they, they pop up everywhere. You know, the big figure in the monastic movement is St. Benedict. Benedict. And mm-hmm. Benedict is a really fascinating character because he begins as that sort of hermit living in a cave. Mm-hmm. And then he gets essentially headhunted, <laughs> like he gets recruited <laughs> by a group of aspiring monks to come and be their abbot, to come and be their spiritual leader. Hey, man, you're real good at this cave living stuff. Yeah, yeah. But he is so extreme, he, like his, his way is so ascetic that <laughs> these guys ultimately try to kill him. <laughs> Which is, it's just the funniest thing to me. It's like, we we want that guy because his devotion to Christ is so extreme, and we want to live that kind of life as well, so we're going to get him and have him be our leader. But then when, when the rubber meets the road... It just devolves into we have to murder him. Like there's <laughs> we, we this can't is the only we way. can't go on this way. <laughs> um, which if you've ever read the rule of Saint Benedict, or if you've ever thought about like the you know so part of the deal with the rule is 
times of prayer. Mm-hmm. Like the day is ordered around times of prayer. Oh, and the night. Exactly. So you've got guys who are waking up in the middle of the night every night um, and getting up very early in the morning to pray. And so, you know, you just think everybody's sleep deprived, <laughs> you know, everybody's on edge and this guy's not giving up. Like he's, he's just pressing on. And so we, we have to poison him, but he escapes like he survives. And, and then in 529, he becomes the abbot at Monte Cassino. And that's really where um, the Benedictine monastic lifestyle gets solidified and becomes the model for for many of the other you know monastic orders that follow and even today uh, you know so so monasticism in today's world primarily exists in the catholic church and in the eastern orthodox church right that's where you find these things still um, and not primarily here in america right there there are monastic orders here in america but uh, this was largely a movement in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so even to this day, that's, that's still where a lot of this is. And um, yeah, like it is, it is fascinating the role that the monasteries play in Christian history because they become centers of learning. They become uh, places where young men and women go to be taught and educated they become repositories of knowledge and they become responsible for a lot of just the passing down of information from generation to generation. Yeah. So they play a critical role in um, history and, and in scholarship within the church as well. Yeah, and, and that's the practical part for me is, is you're right, we, it's not like we have just a ton of monasteries here in America today, but you've got the, you've got the evidence, you've got the historical markings of what monasticism did to ordered life, even in the way that, you know, I, I grew up attending Catholic schools. Yeah, yeah. And there's very much an ordered rule of life. Mm. And I do like to think that some of my teachers, if they had the permission, would have made me wake up at four in the morning to pray as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, yeah. But you, you, see the, you see the benefits, the far-reaching benefits of if we can structure a life mm. for the Christian who, let's consider again our origin of all this stuff if we can structure a life for a christian who otherwise would just be part of a diluted politicized culture mm-hmm. we can better follow christ right right but as as shelley kind of ends the chapter with there are both benefits and blind spots and and i think the blind spots is important to keep in mind too because this is something that started for good reason these folks again weren't running necessarily from the world, but from the world within the church. Right. And yet, also a lot of these monasteries end up being immensely rich. That's they true. They owned yeah. tons yeah. of land, had tons of treasure and gold, and uh, the Vikings found that out. Yeah. Um, but there were a few other things, too. It was like like he ends off with, especially in the Benedictine order, it was an unnatural type mm. of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it couldn't, it couldn't be sustained forever because... At the end of the day, the communal aspect of Christianity outweighs the ascetic benefits. Yeah, and this is one of the places where Shelley really kind of shows his his personal bias. He kind of right. shows his cards in ways that he doesn't always. Um, he really does not seem to be a fan of monasticism. 
Um, and, and I'm a little bit more on the fence about it. Um, I mean, there are elements that I think are uh, not helpful or may not be biblical necessarily. Um, but there are pieces of it, particularly the communal life of the body of Christ, that I think uh, I think the American church could learn a lot from because we are deeply individualistic people, right? True. We live um, highly bifurcated lives. That is the nature of our culture. Um, we are not like we are um, not deeply present with each other in the way that you are when you're literally living together. And so um, in, in many ways, the monastery, even in today's world, harkens back to like the medieval village where it's like if, if we're all going to survive, we all need each other and we all have to do our part and we have to work and hard and yep. we have to you know come together. Um, and so I think there is a lot that the church could learn from the monastic community, not that we should become monastics right. or um, separate ourselves from the world, but but there is a community piece there. And, and you know, honestly, a great, and we need to wrap up, but a great uh, book that is not about monasticism, but it is commu- about community is the book Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. Like it is a bit of a monastic treatise without using any kind of language of monasticism. It is about coming together as the body of Christ in community and bringing all of our gifts and talents to bear, um, you know, and loving each other as we love ourselves. Yeah. And so fascinating stuff. Let's stop there for today. Um, And man, we only have a couple chapters left in uh, this first course on the first 500 years of church history. And um, man, next chapter, we're going to get into the figure of Augustine and who is, I mean, who is just a giant within um, Christianity, even today, and certainly is a major figure in the development of Western Christianity. So we will get into all of that next time and we will see you guys then. Later. Bye. Bye.